Hey guys, what's up? Kevin Jones, founder of Blue Wire. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Do me a favor, send it to one of your friends. We're growing this network, grassroots style. It takes everyone. You're a part of our team if you send this to one of your friends. All right, enjoy this podcast and appreciate your support. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 10 of the Trench Warfare podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Thorne. And we have the draft coming up here in just a few days. So I wanted to bring on a a scout, evaluator, somebody who watches a lot of film, somebody I respect a lot. And um, that is uh, Ben Fennell from, man, he's he's from a bunch of places, the Athletic NFL Network. He does a lot of work uh, around the media space, and he he does a lot of great things on Twitter as well. Um, Ben, how you doing? What's going on, man? I'm doing fine. It's crazy that it's draft week already. I felt like I was sitting there pregame week one of the college season wondering what this whole draft cycle is going to look like, and we're here, and it's just kind of a crazy process. It's the gift that keeps on giving, but it's one of my favorite events, and to kind of go through the whole arc of these prospects and you know, going through their on-field play to the off-season events to the combine to the pro days, the workouts, it's just really fun kind of going through the whole arc of draft season. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's one of the more fun times of the year. And like you said, football doesn't really end, so this is part of that process, which is which is really cool. But you're actually you just got to Nashville, right? You're going to be doing some work uh, for the NFL draft there. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'd worked with Mike Mayock for the past four years. Now with Daniel Jeremiah, and I'll put together a lot of his analysis tapes. So anything he wants to hit on and some of these prospects, the pros, the cons. I'm sitting there researching footage putting together little XO packages for when the players get drafted. Uh, and then I'm also just off a set uh, here on site, you know, helping him out with research and anything they need. The draft is a crazy animal with information. It's very fast paced. So doing everything we can to make our talent shine. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a cool job, man. That sounds so fun. Just getting to get into the film like that. And I'm sure it sharpens you every time you get to do something like this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really just great working with good people like Mike Mayock, like Daniel Jeremiah, guys that sit there and spend the time watching tape. I've worked with a number of talent that just show up and say, what am I talking about? Where are my papers? And just to work with guys that are truly invested in what they're doing. That's why they're the best on TV. And when something happens and the conversation's going left and you need to go right, that's why they're the best in the business, because they're truly invested and educated on these players. Yeah, for sure. I I agree that, you know, Daniel Jeremiah, Mike Mayock are really they've they've led the way in terms of NFL draft analysts the last few years. So it's cool that you're behind the scenes and, you know, that we get to talk to you and just kind of hear about that process a little bit. And, dude, I mean, I see some of the stuff that you post on Twitter and, you know, it's it's hard not to get a little jealous. Some of the stuff that you get to be exposed to, I think of uh, a really cool picture that you posted a few weeks ago or something. It was, I think you were in an office with Fran Duffy and uh, Greg Cosell, and it looked like you guys were just getting ready to watch some film. Yeah, uh, there's two really football niches at NFL Films in South New Jersey. One used to be Playbook, uh, which went away and came back, and then the other is Matchup. Uh, which airs on ESPN, and that's kind of Greg Cosell's little domain. And Fran will come over every now and then and watch tape with Greg, and I'll just poke my head into his office, you know, once a day and just kind of 
you know, just see what's going on. Who is he, who is he watching? Just getting different perspectives and just watching tape and just being football guys, talking about the process, talking about tape, talking about evaluations. Just great to have access to those people in the building. Yeah, I think that's something that's so important for, for scouts out there is to have voices, educated voices that are really invested around you that you can have conversations with, hear different point of views with, you know, disagree with respectfully. But I think that whole process can really, really sharpen a scout. And that's such a big part of being in a draft room, being in any sort of meeting room. I know that being able to to articulate your points and to not be afraid to kind of be alone in an opinion is, is, is really important. So I could just imagine, you know, you guys just having all the access to the tape, pulling up different games, and then just kind of talking about what they're doing well, what they're struggling with, how that translates to the NFL. And I just think those, those conversations would be incredible to have, especially with that crowd. So that, that sounds awesome. Yeah, one thing I always say about the craft of football and watching tape and evaluating play and players is, it's nothing you can just close the door and come out an expert. It doesn't matter how much time you spend with the tape and the information. You don't know what you don't know. And I think you need to spend some time with yourself. And then make sure you're also spending time with other people and just getting other perspectives, other viewpoints. It's amazing to sit there and watch film with an offensive lineman and then watching film with a corner or a quarterback or a safety and the different things they see and their mind goes to, it's really a craft that you don't know what you don't know. And you make sure you're always expanding your knowledge and being willing to be that sponge to other people's knowledge because not we don't all see the game the same way. Yeah, great points. I, I wish I had a little bit more of that. I do get some of that. And uh, that's partly why I created this podcast and wanted to do this because I can bring on people like yourself and we can talk about players and different things that are going on in the game and just get a different perspective. So, you know, with that said, I I think it's a good uh, segue into a podcast that you were just on, which honestly might be my favorite podcast of the year so far and just one of my favorite podcasts in general. It's put on by Josh Norris from Roto World. He had you, Ted Wynn. Dane Brugler and uh, Joe Goodberry on and kind of in a draft room scenario where you um, whittle down your 10 best prospects in the draft from I think it was 19 players or so and um, you know you each gave your perspectives and I loved how Joe brought a lot of the analytical side to it you know you're a heavy film guy I'm sure you consider other things as do the other guys in that discussion but it was just a really good mix of opinions that were going around and a couple things that you brought up during that discussion really stood out to me and this one you know sort of has to do with line play it's about tight ends and you were debating um, with the crew to uh, as to whether or not to put uh, TJ Hawkinson inside the top 10 and I know positional value came into the discussion and kind of kept him out of it but in terms of just being a player um, a safe player I know Dane brought up he kind of compared him to Quentin Nelson in terms of just being very clean and just you can't get much better of a tight end prospect and and you said something that was I think really important that stuck out to me you made a point about how inline tight ends are largely being schemed open in the past game today and you know that kind of increases the value of just having a guy who is a competent or better run blocker and if he's not a total statue as a, as a pass catcher, then you could probably get a guy like that late day two, day three, and you know probably thrive if you if you have an offensive coordinator that's creative. So 
that that to me was really interesting because it seems like there's a few tight ends in this class that kind of fit that mold later in the draft. Yeah, you know, that conversation, I felt like I kind of talked myself into a circle almost in that I was defending the positional value of an inline tight end that blocks really well where you can disguise intent. And I think those are the players that really make offenses tick in the NFL, that it's not the Jimmy Graham, Zach Ertz, and Tyler Eiferts. No, it's mm-hmm. the guys that can put their hand down, the Gronks, the George Kittles. But then in that same conversation, I look at the Red Ellisons of the, of the league or the Luke Stockers of the league, guys that are day three tight ends, undrafted tight ends, where you're like, can we get those blocking tight ends later in the draft or even undrafted and that we don't need you to be this big dynamic pass catching threat with four or five speed and a big frame and all this agility. No, we can find a guy that can play in line that will block for us at the point of attack, cut the backside and all the stuff in the pass game. Don't worry about that. We'll scheme you open off a of play action. We'll get you on over routes and little slip routes and scheme you some yak and things like that. So when I see the George, or excuse me, the Noah fans of the world running four or five, and everybody's excited to get a player like this in their offense, I also come back to the liability of having those type of vertical threats in the offense, and that they're not really the ones that make the offense tick. So I kind of went into a circle, uh, kind of discussing the positional value and whether a TJ Hawkinson caliber of player is really worth that in the first round. Yeah, totally. I think. You make great points because, I mean, the way that the run game is now, you know, you have to be efficient at it because it's not like teams are running a lot. So if you have a tight end, like some of those guys you mentioned that can't block to save their life, it actually limits the offense more than it helps it for the most part. And I totally agree because I, you know, as with, you know, watching offensive line primarily, I really notice those tight ends who can block. And you mentioned some. I mean, even Garrett Selleck as well in the 49ers scheme. I mean, they have two guys, I think, who are, you know, I mean, Kittle's kind of on his own level, but Selleck is a number two, is a really solid blocker. And there's several guys like that that really do a lot for a running game. And it goes over, it gets overlooked a lot. Like you said, like backside cutoffs, um, just sustaining blocks and not falling off, simple stuff like that. And when you have a guy like Kyle Shanahan to scheme him open for some yak, like you said, I think that's kind of, that's personal preference. That's the route that I would go for tight ends because I love having that guy that can be an extension of the offensive line. So that's um. That's... I love looking at the uh, the case study of a couple of years ago when the Ravens took that big sexy Max Williams that was great in the open field, and then they took this guy Nick Boyle out of Delaware in the later rounds, and mm-hmm. suddenly Nick Boyle was on the field more, and then suddenly last off season, or this off season, Nick Boyle gets a contract. Everybody's like, who's Nick Boyle? Why are we giving Nick Boyle contracts to the world? Because those are the players that make offenses tick. Those are the players you can disguise your intent on first down that can block for you. And don't worry about the pass game. We can get you open in the pass game. Yeah, for sure. And guys carve out careers that just doing that, man. I think of a guy like Virgil Green. I think, you know, the reason he's hanging around, I know he tested well in like his agilities and stuff like that, but I've always thought he's a pretty solid blocker and just kind of a reliable number two you know, he's hanging around, backing up Henry, uh, Hunter Henry in uh, L.A. You know, guys like that. I mean, those Mercedes I, I feel like Lewis. there's players like that kind of around the league. And, like, I, you know, working with the Philadelphia Eagles and just seeing Brent Selleck of the world, you know, yeah. carve out a 10-, 12-year career in the NFL. Listen, Brent Selleck doesn't do anything exceptionally with his athleticism or any sort of physical upside or God-given abilities. No, mm-hmm. he's a tough player that can play in line. 
And then, yeah, we'll get you some opportunities in the pass game. You can be big and tough and, you know, make some guys miss in the open field or break some tackles. But if you can't do the dirty work on first down, and that's when I went and watched, you know, a lot of that Titans offense from last year, and I wanted to see how Matt LaFleur was scheming guys open and using some of these weapons now that he's the head coach of the Packers. And I'm seeing all these explosive plays from Luke Stocker and Jonu Smith and McCoyle Pruitt, and all of them are – off play action and over routes and throwbacks mm. and off misdirection. And I'm just saying none of these guys are doing anything exceptional to get themselves open. So the whole idea of them being open is a foundation and a scheme. And that's what Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay and now Matt LaFleur really preach and having that foundation, being able to run multiple plays out of the same look, out of the same personnel. And that's really the philosophy a lot of these young offensive coordinators are going with. Yeah, for sure. It's a it's definitely a trend worth noting, especially in draft evaluation for tight ends, for sure. So, yeah, that's that's a really uh, interesting discussion there. And I think I wanted to just go over to some prospects now on the offensive and defensive line. Do, regardless of draft position or projection or whatever, do you have a favorite offensive lineman and defensive lineman that you enjoyed watching on tape that you feel comfortable he doesn't have to necessarily be a blue player maybe a red player you know just a solid good player is there somebody like that on each side of the ball that kind of are your guys this year yeah you know there's been a couple guys I've had crushes on throughout the season I did a handful of Washington State games and I didn't feel like Andre Dillard was getting much love playing out there in the Pac-12 late games and suddenly you start watching this guy and it's an air raid system and he's dropping back 700 times and they allowed 13 sacks and Gardner Minshew this past year was a little bit different than an air raid quarterback. This guy would run around. He had some improvisational style. And I'm just saying this, this left tackle week in and week out is just handling every edge rushing threat that he faced each week. And whether that was a Carl Granderson at Wyoming and a Porter Gustin at USC, I just feel like he really did his job and really represented almost a David Bakhtiari in that he's not really a mauler. He doesn't make a lot of noise. He's not super physical. He just has very quiet feet. He's always under control. He's always balanced. He's not on the ground. He's great in space. The more you watched him, you just said, this guy's doing everything right. I don't see any issues with him. And I just didn't feel like Andre Dillard was getting the attention that a maybe an SEC or Big 12 tackle was getting. But when I look at a quiet tackle, what I call a quiet tackle just for his play style, there's also yeah. some mauling tackles that I really like, whether that's Cody Ford at Oklahoma or the more I watch Dalton Risner at Kansas State. Man, he doesn't look the part with that big barrel chest and the thick calves and thick ankles. But, yeah, man, he, he did everything he wanted from a right tackle uh, in the Big 12. He handled all the speed threats off the edge. And this guy is a nasty people mover in the run game. And things go wrong on the offensive line. You're going to get your foot stepped on. You're going to get your hands knocked down. Maybe the guard steps into you. Something's going to go wrong. Can you fight your way out of it? Can you scrap your way out of it? Can you maul your way out of it? And that's Dalton Risner. When it just comes down to it, will he fight you? He will. He'll punch you in the face. He looks to finish you in the ground. He's got an edge to him. And I love that type of stuff. Yeah, is it a little dirty here and there? It is. But I want to talk to the people that like dirty offensive linemen because there's a purpose for them in the NFL. Yeah, you definitely like the guys who can toe that line for sure. And there's plenty of successful examples of that. And I, I'm also a huge fan of that. And that, those are two guys that are uh, really interesting. And I'd like to go in a little bit more detail on each of their games, but just in general, I, I mean, I agree with you. Is in terms of you know executing their assignment, 
they both were outstanding in that regard. Um, it, it's just, it gets kind of interesting to me when you start having to project a little bit, which I think there's this finding how much of that you need to incorporate into your, your evaluation is interesting to me. And when I think about somebody like Risner, um, you know, I, I noticed that little bit of that false step that he has coming out of his stance where he kind of has to chase guys up the field a little bit because he falls behind you know, against those really good speed rushers. And I just think the level of competition that he's going to face is, is going to jump pretty significantly if he were to stay at tackle. And while that didn't get very, very much at all exposed on the college level, I just, in the back of my mind, I think, man, all the successful right tackles that I can think of in the NFL, none of them have that false step. Maybe Jack Conklin a little bit, which he had that coming out of Michigan State, and I was concerned about it. And I think he's a probably a good player, but... Um, not so I'm not saying that, you know, Risner has to have like a Tyron Smith ceiling or anything to be a really good prospect, but that's kind of part of the reason why I liked him a little bit inside at guard. Also because of all the good things he does, like you said, his attitude, his demeanor, his play strength, what he does in the run game, um, and then just his aggressiveness and pass protection, loves to get his get his hands on guys and end the fight early. That type of stuff all translates to the inside to me. Although I think he could play right tackle, so I don't know, do you, did, did, did any of that cross your mind? How do you weigh that? And just um, how do you approach that projection piece with different things like that, like level of competition? Right. Who was it that had the false step last year? Was that Colton Miller? Yeah, that was a bad one. Yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, pretty notorious. But uh, no, Rizzer's got a handful of issues, certainly to note. He obviously, I think he gets perpendicular to sideline way too fast. I think you really yeah. need to work rework his kick slide if he's going to be a tackle in the NFL. He's so anxious to get his hands on you. Occasionally, he's a little bit leaning, a little bit reaching. That causes him to waste bend, get a little bit off balance. And then also mm -hmm. you have to consider the age. He's going to be a 24-year-old rookie. He's had some left shoulder surgeries, which are definitely concerns being a tackle. In the player comparison, you know, it's easy to write down the Cody Whitehair or Brandon Scherf or Mitch Morse and these guys that were on the outside that are probably going to be interior players in the NFL. So, like you're saying, once you get that level of competition in the NFL, your technique flaws are really going to catch up with you. And I didn't really feel like he faced some great competition in the Big 12 this year. I know they played Mississippi State earlier in the season right. where he really Good didn't game. have many – he didn't have many uh, issues with Montez Sweat. They only faced mm -hmm. up about seven or eight reps in pass protection. Sweat got him once on a good club rip and flattened to the quarterback. But other than that, I thought he handled the, the length of a premier edge rusher uh, from the SEC fairly well. That made me say, you know what, I think he can hang off the edge. So I think he'll take a Justin Pugh type of approach that let him feast or famine on the edge first. And then if we have to kick him inside and maybe protect him in a phone booth, we'll go ahead when we need to. Yeah, I'm totally on board with that idea of letting a guy fail first at a position that he has played the most of. I totally respect that opinion, and uh, a lot of the times I, I lean that way, and then sometimes I just think, like with Cody Ford, I also like him a little bit more at guard just because I feel like his instant impact and his long-term impact would be a little bit higher at guard. That's just my opinion, um, but again, I totally respect that idea of just let him try it right tackle first and then you can always kick him inside as opposed to putting him at guard and then you're kind of you know moving him outside to tackles a little more unrealistic so that makes total sense with with Risner he's but I'm, I'm a fan of him as well and then 
going back to Dillard, I mean, he was one of the more, if not the most fascinating guys for me to evaluate and look at, try to put together a profile on him and, you know, study his film and everything. And I, I was able to get in quite a few games. Fortunately, I had access to about eight games on coaches tape. So I felt like I got a really good idea of him and I watched them in order as well. So that really, um, highlighted his ability throughout the year to get better, which especially with his hands. I mean, I felt like as the year went on, he was utilizing different hand techniques. I I think it was Oregon. Oregon was one of his better games, but I think around mm-hmm. Utah or Oregon State is when he started using that, that, I call it baiting, where you use that outside hand and you kind of throw it at the rusher and bring it back real quick to get him to prematurely execute a move and throw off his timing and his footwork. That type of stuff there is like pretty advanced in my opinion. I just thought his hand usage, I mean, he's an elite athlete. He's elite. He's twitched up. You know, his play speed is really good. But his hand techniques, man, were really impressive to me. And I thought his ability to keep his hips square to the line of scrimmage and never really prematurely open that outside hip, that type of stuff, man, really kind of boosted him in my opinion, despite some of the concerns that he has on film. I think play strength is maybe the biggest thing, you know, in terms of, gap uh, man principles and her concepts he didn't really execute a lot of that so I think he's scheme dependent which kind of drops his value a little bit but um, what I wanted to ask you about him specifically and if you have any responses to any of those things please feel free to interject but specifically his his um, the splits that Washington State State plays with you know, I read that Mike Leach said part of the reason why they do that is to spread out the defensive line to expand their path to the quarterback or lengthen their path to the quarterback, which theoretically would help offensive tackles because the defensive ends have to be further away from the quarterback, and he's able to get his hands on guys quicker because they're typically in three-man fronts a lot of the time, not all the time, but so he sees a lot of five techniques and guys that are pretty close to him, so he can really get on them quick and end it. I just have a little bit of a concern with the split adjustment. The level of competition is going to go up significantly, and then just the different alignments that I think he might see. So that's the reason why I gave him more of a late first type early second grade, although I think his upside's tremendous. But what do you think about that in his evaluation? Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't think it knocked him down much for you guys, especially in that discussion. But that those are concerns for me in terms of instant impact type of stuff. Yeah, you know, Andre Diller is definitely a fascinating player. Let's just face it, he didn't have great edge-rushing competition the past two years in the Pac-12. I thought he dominated Jalen Jelks. He played Carl Granderson from Wyoming this year, had no problem with him. Porter mm-hmm. Gustin was suspended for the first half and then actually didn't see him a whole lot in that USC game. Gotcha. Um, a couple I things didn't... with uh, Dillard from last year to this year. So I loved his bowl game in 2017 against Michigan State. You could watch him against Kenny Willekes, who really made a name for himself this year in the Big Ten, given Isaiah Prince problems. I think he was the defensive lineman of the year in, in the Big Ten and will mm. be a hot prospect next year. But going from 2017 to 2018, Washington State, I don't know if a lot of people realize they really got out of those vertical sets because they changed their offensive line coach. They actually hired – Blanking the name right now, Mason but they hired Miller, Nevada's off- yes, yeah. They yeah. hired Nevada's offensive line coach, who yep. we all know coached Austin Corbett last year, who was a mm-hmm. second round pick to the Cleveland Browns, uh, and is very, very technical with his hand usage and his fundamentals with hands, and that's something he really preaches in practice and even in Love the film that. room, and and always, yeah, making sure your hands are fundamentally sound and up. 
And that's something that I think Diller did a really good job with is always having his hands up, always having his eyes up, plays a great balance, great awareness. There's a lot of stunts and twists in the Pac-12 because I don't think they're great one-on-one pass rushers. So a lot of times they're trying to free open some guys. And I think he just does a great job with play awareness and play IDing. But he's definitely, a, I think, a scheme-dependent tackle in that I think a zone team is going to be intrigued with him if you're an outside zone team. But if you're a power team and really a gap team and a team that wants to get downhill in the run game, I don't know if that's the type of tackle for you. He's really more of a light on his feet, athletic type of talent, being more around 300 pounds, running a sub 540, that if you're more of a gap team and a power running team, you may be more intrigued with like a Jawan Taylor from Florida, who's a much more of a brute mauling tackle, more around the you know, 320, 330 size that you really don't excel with the quickness off the ball or his initial sets. So I think he is, Dillard is going to have some scheme-specific, you know, tendencies. And I think only certain teams are going to be intrigued with him. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And that's partly why I had his value a little bit lower than most, um, just in general. You know, obviously And the one hard. thing with Dillard, uh, sorry to cut you off there, is I really put value in certain players like this and watching them at the Senior Bowl because I call yeah. the, that I call that naked practice. It's you and it's your opponent. It's one on one, and I really need to see how he handled some of the premier pass rushing talent. And I thought he really handled some of the inside moves well from Montez Sweat and Jalen Ferguson. Can he really throttle down that anchor, put his cleats in the ground, and stop power rushes? I thought he did a really good job at the Senior Bowl, and that kind of put me into say I think he is a top one or two tackle in this class. I thought he had a really good week down in Mobile. Yeah, great point. I, I missed Mobile this year, so I'm a little behind in, in that regard. So that's a that's a really good point. But I actually thought in my scouting report, I, I said he had, he did a solid job transitioning to anchor against speed to power. I thought he cut grass really well with the insteps of his feet. And I really liked, again, his hands to get inside the frame of guys, lift and strain. So to be able to strain like that and extend your hips into a defender to really, you know, uh, cut grass and, and – uh, and have some stopping power to him. I, I didn't think his anchor was a big concern. I didn't think it was great, but I didn't think it was bad either. I thought it was right kind of in that midline area. So that's cool to see and, and hear at least that he showed that in Mobile as well because that really wasn't a, a much of a concern to me. He's also 23, which isn't you know bad you know by any means. He'll be 24 in October. So he's about two years older than Jawan Taylor, Jonah Williams, Cody Ford. So not a big deal, but... Um, and a lot of people really haven't mentioned the fact that he has the same arm length as Jonah Williams. I just don't think you saw that level of pass rushing talent in the Pac-12 where Jonah Williams was on everybody's radar and we know to try a long arm move on this guy. I don't think you had that level of pass rusher in the Pac-12 to really see that arm length become a liability. And like Big Duke says and stuff, just because you have 36-inch arms, though, that doesn't fix your feet, it doesn't pick, fix your posture, it doesn't fix your pass sets. It doesn't fix your hand location. So the whole idea of arm length being a detriment, I think, is a bit of a fallacy. Yeah, I totally agree. I think 33 should be the new 34 in terms of right. that benchmark because there's just so many examples of guys with 33 and change arms who are playing tackle at a high level at this point. So, it's and, and then there's 36-inch arms, and they can't play a lick. So it's you know I could find you a case study either, either way. Yeah, LaRaven Clark. But anyway, um, that's, that's just one. Because I remember he had 36, I think. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. I think his his arms, uh, Andre Dillard, were just a tick actually lower than Jonah. But 
either way, yeah, it's it's interesting that one gets mentioned and the other doesn't, but you bring up important context for level of comp. I guess we could just touch on Jonah real quick. I mean, you guys, I really enjoyed the conversation that you guys had um, in that uh, in that roundtable discussion. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I know Dane is, is very high on Jonah. I think I'm pretty similar to him in this regard. I I, th- I just think when you look at his game, you look at his production, his experience, 44 starts in SEC, right and left tackle. I mean, a lot of really, really good competition. I think his floor is the highest in the draft, which is has become increasingly important to me over these last two, three, four years that I've been evaluating offensive linemen as I've grown to learn that they don't really get a ton of technique work unless they're going to go play for Bill Callahan, Mike Munchak, Dante Skarnecki, or maybe a half dozen others at the most. So they're going to really have to to be at a certain level to have it, that instant impact and not have those variables of, you know, these would have, could have, should have, like if, buts. There's not a lot of that for me with Jonah. So, and I still think he has upside to be like, you know, a Pro Bowl, maybe even all pro type player eventually. But even if he isn't, I mean, I just think, you know, I feel really good about his evaluation. You know, I think he's scheme versatile as well. I, I think you mentioned you like him more in his own scheme, which I think that's probably, if you have to pick one, that, that would be where I would go. But, I, man, he is an outstanding vertical displacement, double-team blocker, the things that he does. I mean, just use of leverage, all that stuff. So just kind of what's your what's your elevator pitch on Jonah? Like, how do you feel about him? And um, how did you feel about where you guys placed him in the top ten? Yeah, I don't have any issues with him in the top 10 there. I think he's a zone-blocking prodigy, uh, whether inside zone, outside zone. And one of the traits I love is his reaction to slant, stunts, blitzers, and always having his eyes up and being able to process and ID things on the fly, which Mm -hmm. in zone-blocking schemes can really throw off blocking schemes with post-snap movement from defensive linemen. I thought that's something he just handled very well. But I found myself writing and being – enamored the same way I was for Luke Jokel out of Texas A&M a couple of years ago, where I thought this guy was just made in a Petri dish. I thought he had everything you wanted from technique and size. And he got to the NFL and kind of fell on his face a little bit and guys mauled him and really got after him with power. And I'm just afraid of that kind of arc with Jonah Williams. And I know we had mentioned Justin Pugh before where a lot of people have compared a, a similar type of style and maybe will have a similar career arc in failing at tackle and moving into guard and settling in there. But I think Jonah has just done everything he needs to do as far as put on tape against top-level SEC talent. Obviously had some struggles against Cleon Farrell and some length in that national championship game. Occasionally has a narrow base and some footwork problems that throw off his balance. But just being that athletic, experienced, quick-minded, with tons of, tons of experience and reps against quality competition – I have no issues putting him in the top 10. And like you're saying, I will let him fail in whatever scheme you want to throw him in first and foremost. He has my vote. Yeah, for sure. That's well said. A lot of good points there. And I'm glad that you said athletic because, you know, I think this is one of the more, uh, I guess, heated, but also not heated, but just controversial, I think is a good term for it in terms of offensive line, athletic metrics that come from the combine and pro days and there's many um, composite scores that show that Jonah is either an average or below average athlete in some regards but it's it's interesting because for me you know I think you know this but with offensive linemen man I mean it's all about play speed it's it's all about how fast you execute your assignments on the field and 
your functional athleticism. I don't really care about the combine much. I mean, I do like the drills. I think that's very important. And you can glean some things, I think, when you're watching them do some of these workouts. But I don't know, man. I mean, if the guy has it on film, the you know, the combine really, you know, it just serves as a check. You know, go ahead, double check. But I went back and, you know, to Jonah after the combine and I'm like, man, this guy's got good athleticism. I, I wouldn't call it very good or elite necessarily. You could maybe say very good, but I, I kind of chalked it up under good on my grading scale, which is just perfectly fine. And I, I love what you said in the roundtable discussion about Jawan Taylor. I wrote this down because I think it was Joe uh, Goodberry who, you know, was obviously very um, um, uh, careful about giving a grade to somebody who didn't participate in the combine as Juwan Taylor didn't in terms of the uh, the time drills and stuff. And you said his test was 35 SEC starts. And I was just like, man, like, you know, I was like, I got excited when you said that because that, <laughs> that is so true. You know, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that that point of view for, for offensive line, especially more than any other position on the football field, I think, you know, level of competition, amount of starts, and then how they move on tape and that the speed at which they execute assignments can trump the combine and it should um so yeah and I mean, listen, i'm not like anti-analytics i'm just still yeah, trying either. to find the right kind of balance of it all and what does it mean or not mean and obviously yeah. i like hearing the different minds and i want to learn for sure if it has a more impactful meaning to somebody or why it does or why it doesn't but I'm a little bit bare bones. I'm a film guy. I don't care what you jumped or what you ran or how long your arms are. Can you play or not? And I think yeah. the film is your football DNA, and that's who you are as a player. And I think once you get into the awesome. analytics and, yeah, can you find thresholds and common traits from Hall of Famers? Absolutely. Does it mean that there aren't going to be Hall of Famers outside of that threshold? No, not at all. So I think when you start pegging into analytics and thresholds, that's how you miss out on good players. Yeah, I agree. I I know I probably it could be construed that I was like really, you know, anti-analytics in that in the statements I made. But I just think for offensive line, it matters the least in terms of combine stuff. But yeah, I mean, you, you know, corners, defensive ends, edge rushers. Yeah, you want to really look at the combine closer in other positions as well. But yeah, so I, I totally agree. I love Joe's perspective in that, by the way. I thought I mean, it was it really kind of opened up my eyes and some of the numbers he was using, I, I thought had value. Um, so yeah, by all means, you know, analytics has its has a, a strong place in the evaluation process. But you know, but right off the cuff of what you're saying there, I'd love to ask you a question. So as we're saying that analytics really don't matter as much for offensive linemen, and I don't know if you happen to saw uh, Fran Duffy's podcast last week with Brandon Brooks. No, I haven't seen that yet. But anyways, just really quickly, he just said, what's the number one trait you look for from some of these young guys coming into the NFL? And he immediately talked about IQ and processing and intelligence. And I think that's why the analytics and the measurements aren't as important because it's such a mental position. And just hearing Brandon Brooks and a player of his caliber say, it didn't matter how big and burly and strong and fast I was, if I didn't have the processing and the and the IDing and the IQ of understanding what's going on and being on the same page with Kelsey to the left of me and Lane Johnson to the right of me and making sure I'm on the same page with Jason Peters and we're seeing everything right, man, it's such a mental position. And sometimes you don't figure out what they have mentally until you get your hands on them. And I think that's why a lot of offensive linemen fail. 
It's rarely because of ability. But how do you know if they have the IQ or not? And sometimes you don't know, and that's why those meetings and just talking to them and bringing them in on pre-draft visits and talking to their academic advisors and O-line coaches are so important for this position because a lot of it is what's going on between the ears. Yeah, definitely. That that's all. I definitely need to listen to that podcast. I, I liked it on Twitter and just haven't gotten to it yet. But that that's awesome because processing is the biggest reason probably why I have Jonah in the place that I do in the draft and other guys in the past that I've liked uh, so much. And I really think play speed and the way that I was taught it is a function of mental processing and athletic ability. When you marry those two things, you get play speed. So you can have an athlete that's solid or average, and you can have him as an elite mental processor, and he could be a really good player. And that's very prevalent, I think, on the offensive line because there's really not a lot of freak athletes that have elite mental processing. Then you have Hall of Famers, but you can really make up for a lack of, especially combine athleticism, if you have that mental processing. You could play really fast despite not being the best athlete. And I think of the worst athlete in the NFL at center is Travis Frederick in terms of combine. He has the slowest 40, the slowest, I think the lowest vert, the worst broad. And I mean, that dude can move on the football field. And I think a lot of it is because mental processing, he's blocking third level defenders. He's doing all that kind of stuff. So, and, and I feel the same way about linebackers. You know, you see some of these yeah. linebackers running four, seven, and some guys running four, four. If you don't have the play ID and reading your keys and having instincts, it doesn't matter. And taking the proper angles, it doesn't matter if you're a four, four player, I could see a four, seven linebacker getting to the ball faster because of those instincts and the angles and the IDing and the mental processing that you really have to merit together and that if you just being a straight linear athlete isn't everything. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's another example, Mitchell Schwartz for the Chiefs. He's one of the worst tested athletes in the NFL at tackle, but man, he plays the game fast. He he's extremely bright and sharp and uh football IQ is, you know, through the roof. I've gotten to talk to him a lot. And yeah, I mean, somebody like that, he wins with technique in his mind, basically, and and uh, leverage. So yeah, there's there's a lot of examples of elite players who are really bad in the combine uh, for offensive lines. So you know, I think um, you know, you, we make some we make some intriguing points there. Life can be stressful, but getting life insurance shouldn't be. That's why there's Ethos. Ethos is a modern kind of life insurance that's super fast, incredibly affordable, and very uncomplicated. At GetEthos.com, there's no medical exams for policies covering under a million dollars, no hours of paperwork, or meetings with pushy representatives. It only takes 10 minutes to apply, and you can rest assured knowing you've taken steps to protect your family, and in most cases with Ethos, you can have that peace of mind for less than a cup of coffee a day with no hidden fees. Having life insurance can free you from stress. Getting life insurance shouldn't cause it. Discover how uncomplicated life insurance can be at Ethos. Get your free instant quote and submit your complete application in minutes. Just go to getethos.com. That's ethos, E-T-H-O-S, getethos.com, getethos.com. Yeah, so... I mean, already, man, I've kept you uh, almost double the amount of time I wanted to keep you. I know um, you probably have some some prep stuff or just want to kick back, relax, whatever. I just want to say I really appreciate this time. And uh, can you let all the listeners know where they can find your work? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's always a pleasure to talk prospects with you, especially offensive line. But feel free to follow me over on Twitter, Ben Fennell, B-E-N-F-E-N-N-E-L-L underscore NFL. Uh, this time of year, I'm a producer of the NFL Network, so be sure to watch our coverage of the NFL Draft on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Also contributor to the Athletic Wisconsin, doing some Packers film breakdowns during the season. I'm in the Eagles media department during the season. I'm also out on games with ESPN College Football. This business card is getting a little long and wordy, but uh, it's a lot of football and life could be worse, right? Oh, 100%. So, yeah, everybody go ahead and follow Ben. He does tremendous work, and I can't recommend it enough. Ben, thanks so much for the time and enjoy the draft. Thank you very much. It's a great time, and it's one of my favorite events. It's, uh, you can never get too far into these players. There's always more players to watch and more information to find. Absolutely. All right, man, I'll talk to you soon. All right, take care, Brent.